This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome along to the latest episode of the Manchester Red Podcast from the Manchester Evening News. I'm today's host, George Smith, and I'm delighted to say that I'm joined as ever by my colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Rich Faye's Bank Holiday Monday lunchtime. Samuel, first of all, how are you? Not not bad, thank you. My, my voice isn't completely recovered. Uh, it was it was worse trying to um, croak through a, a mix zone sh- session with Tyrell Malassia yesterday. So uh, uh, the, the the press conference certainly didn't have my um, not so dulcet tones uh, on the soundtrack yesterday. Well, at least you're on the men today. Hopefully, and Rich, how about you? Have you just about recovered from a a week of partying with your beloved Wrexham now back in the football league? Yeah, it's, I think my voice is croaky for different reasons to Samuel. I was quite inebriated <laughs> on Saturday, a 10-hour round trip to Torquay, but it, it was brilliant. And yeah, and I think from United point of view as well, they, they won. So we'll get into that in a minute. But I think there's a, a happy weekend all around, really. Yeah, definitely. It seems that way. And as for United, obviously, they took another gigantic stride towards securing Champions League qualification for next season with a 1-0 win over Aston Villa on Sunday afternoon. Bruno Fernandes scoring the only goal of the game shortly before the half-time break to secure a fourth win in the last five league games, which is pretty good going. Excuse me, it seems like United are picking up the pace at just the right time. Samuel, you were at Old Trafford yesterday afternoon alongside Tyrone as well. First of all, what did, what did you make to the game and how did you assess another United victory? It was a very good win uh, because Villa were in such good form going into that game. They'd won eight and drawn two of their last ten, I think it was. And yesterday was the first time they, they'd failed to score under Unai Emery, which I, I wasn't aware of until, obviously, um, the, the full-time whistle went and, and that stat was doing the rounds. I think it was his 23rd game in charge. So that reflects extremely well on on the United defence and, and David De Gea. I think he's too clear now for the, the clean sheet, um, in the clean sheet table for the Golden Glove, which is... It's, it's, it's strange because although United have had some absolute pummelings in the Premier League this season, a, a lot of defenders, and, and De Gea's had a decent season, but a number of the defenders have had very good seasons, um, ranging from very good to to excellent. And, and Luke Shaw, is, his, his reinvention as a centre-back, is, is it continues to impress. I think that's nine starts for him now in a, in a back two, in a partnership. United haven't lost a single game. I think they've only conceded six goals when he's been playing at centre-half this season as well. So that just goes to show how well he has uh, adjusted to that role. He he suggested that was a, a solution when the, the season resumed after the World Cup because Harry Maguire was injured. And I can't remember what the other situation was. Oh, Lissandra Martinez, sorry. He, he'd obviously gone off to Argentina, so he was going to miss uh, a portion of that restart. But 
I mean, Shaw is such a he's such a physical defender, and I think in in a way it seems more obvious now. But he's he's always possibly had the attributes to be a very good centre half, and in this era where where height doesn't necessarily matter as much as Martinez has shown this season, uh, Shaw's not the the tallest, of course, but the way he positions himself, his reading of the game, is extremely impressive. But in terms of the wider performance, United were were quite good in the first half they had a few decent openings before they got the goal and the second half Villa made it made it more of a tight contest it wasn't a particularly um it, it wasn't a game that was necessarily pleasing on the eye not not one for the aesthetes but I don't think it was necessarily ever going to be and sometimes when the when it's chucking it down as well that just makes it more of a slugfest and in the end, United came through it quite quite impressively, and and as I said, it was the the defensive players that that stood out. Shaw, Victor Lindelof, and and, and Casemiro, those three were were particularly excellent. And although Liverpool got that very very late win against Tottenham yesterday, and that probably makes them next in line to to take a, a top four place if it is indeed up for grabs. It really is United to lose, and they something disastrous would have have to happen if they aren't to be in the Champions League next season. Yeah, definitely. And Rich Samuel's touched on there the contributions of Victor Lindelof and Luke Shaw, and how well they played on Sunday afternoon. They've really stepped up to the plate in the last few games. Are you surprised by just how well they've done United defensively in the absence of Lissandro Martinez and Rafael Branks? I mean, to have lost one of them at any point would have been, you know, dangerous enough, but to have lost them both the same evening as they did against Sevilla, it would have been quite easy for United to collapse, but except for the second half against Spurs on Thursday night, United have been pretty solid in the last four or five domestic games. Yeah, and even after the Tottenham uh, draw, you know, Ten Hag said that he didn't have much blame on their centre-backs. He said that they both had played well, and I think you have got to give them enormous credit because, like you said there, George, it's very easy to forget that the narrative after those two injuries was United's season was over and it would maybe be a success if they just finished in the top four again, and here we are now with six games left, and that looks assured again. United looks certainties to get Champions League football, and yeah, it's huge credit to Lindelof and to Shaw. It's no interesting that we've maybe not seen as much as Shaw at centre-back this season. That That's testament to, to Martinez, but you go back to last summer and Alex Tellers was playing centre-back because Ten Hag wanted to prepare his team for playing with a left-footed centre-back. You know, he had that sort of Louis van Gaal desire, someone like Tyler Blackett, just because they were left-footed. And, you know, that always is maybe a bit of a concern because by virtue, you may be selecting a player to play there because they've They've got a preferred foot, not because they're the best player for the role, but it's a huge credit to Shaw that that he's done so well there. And and Lindelof grew into the game as well. And I think they've got a really good understanding of of one another. And they are players who can do United a lot of sort of justice going forward as well. So it's particularly interesting when you look at the centre-back situation going into the summer. And I, I don't think there'll be a United fan now who will tell them who would want the club to sell Lindelof and keep Maguire. I think everyone will be saying it should be you know, the other way around. And I think it's just been really refreshing to see. And again, like you said, to bring it full circle, huge credit because it did look like United's season could peter out. They've got a chance now at a second trophy. They've got Champions League football all but guaranteed. And Ten Hag deserves credit, but so do Shaw and Lindelof because for Lind- for Lindelof particularly, he's he's had to struggle of not playing much this season, but to be prepared and, and willing to come into the team and he's just getting better with every single game. It's it's a really difficult situation to be the reserve centre back at United, but I think Lindelof has firmly established himself ahead of Maguire in the pecking order now. 
yeah, definitely. That kind of goes in nicely to sticking with the um, train of thought on the defensive situation. As Samuel mentioned earlier on, David De Gea is now leading the way for the Golden Glove with 15 Premier League clean sheets. United have kept 26 clean sheets in all competitions now, shared between two or three goalkeepers. Um, you know, sticking with some statistics, they've only conceded eight goals at home in the Premier League this season. That's the best of anybody. They've kept more clean sheets at home than anyone else, 10 and 16. The defence really has been the backbone of their improvement. And Samuel, when you think all the way back to that 4-0 defeat at Brentford at the very beginning of the season, I don't think anybody could have predicted that United would enter the last month of the season with the most number of clean sheets and one of the best defensive records in the division. No, and and the defensive record has still got room for improvement. It's not comparable with the best seasons they've they've had in the Premier League when... uh, Go back to two thousand eight and nine. They had this ridiculous record where I don't think they conceded a Premier League goal between I think it was maybe early November and and late February. It was you know it beat all the records or whatever they were. I, I certainly don't know them off off by heart, which is probably just as well. But they have got they've got the quality there in that although Varane and Martinez aren't around at the moment. Uh, I mean Martinez was there yesterday on on crutches in the tunnel speaking to a couple of. Um, a couple of uh, the, the the Argentines in the in the Villa squad, but those two have been one of the best partnerships in the league this season. And it's it, it's strange when we come to that point now where the team of the season is is likely to be announced in the next two or three weeks, um, and it's it's difficult to pinpoint who who the two centre backs will be selected by 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 the professional footballers uh, will be because I think Martinez is is a worthy shout, but where he's been injured, he's. He's not going to be on people's minds as much, and you could say the same about William Saliba at Arsenal, who I'd, I'd have probably had as a shoe in not that long ago. But his injury, and you can see the the impact that's had on Arsenal, and and that's that's the difference. If if you're Mikel Arteta, I think an ideal centre back to go for, or at least test the waters for, would be Lindelof, because he's better than Gabriel. I, I've never rated Gabriel at Arsenal. I think he's just a complete loose cannon, and I don't know why Rob Holding is is still at Arsenal, never mind the the third-choice centre-back. Lindelof is an upgrade on literally two of Arsenal's most senior centre-backs, but you wouldn't necessarily have him as a certain starter alongside Saliba. Nevertheless, there's a chance he might be on the market, but I think a lot of United fans will hope that that those circumstances are changing given that he started the last five games. He's played well in, in most of them. I thought his performance against Villa was possibly his best for United primarily because for a defender who has always been seen as aerially suspect and Jose Mourinho even said it on on Sky during one of his um, punditry games and he he was a manager who was in charge when when Lindelof joined United but his his interventions his aerial interventions against Villa were the most impressive aspect about his performance and it was a it was a bit of a shame for him in a way that 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 one that he cleared off the line, it was it, it didn't matter because the the linesman's flag eventually did go up, which I think was still lost on quite a few people inside the stadium and and possibly the match of the day commentator. But he was very dominant against Watkins uh, yesterday, and and that's not necessarily a takeaway you'd be leaving Old Trafford with having watched Lindelof, whether he'd played well or whether he hadn't played well, that he would be aerially dominant in those in those circumstances, but he was. And really, United have got quite a decent, I mean, it's a better than decent quartet of centre-backs with Maguire added into it. I know Maguire is 
you know, he, he, he's having a bit of a disastrous season. But as a reserve centre-back, although that's not the role he was bought for, he's fine. Um, I, th- I suppose, you know, that his situation is unsustainable, particularly given that his, his biggest impacts at the moment are coming on in the last 10 minutes of games and essentially just heading the ball away, clearing the ball away. He did it against Wolves and Manchester City. I think he did it in the League Cup final as well. And he did it again yesterday. So that's that's the most use Ten Hag is getting out of him at the moment. And it seems to have you know shifted again there because certainly in March, Maguire played a couple of games ahead of Lindelof just before the internationals. And Ten Hag didn't really play the politics well there because Lindelof was the obvious player to pick. Lindelof goes away and rather politely because he's an introverted chap. He's, he's not particularly... Um, he's never going to be... Uh, particularly antagonistic with with what he says but he said he'd have to evaluate his situation at the end of the season speaking to some people who've been around the Swedish camp they say off the record that he was actually pretty angry about his situation at United and couldn't understand why he dropped as, as far down the hierarchy as he had but these injuries to Martinez and and uh, and, and Varane have, have allowed him back in and I think I wrote a couple of weeks ago, he's got a chance of regaining his role as a third choice at United, but he's he's possibly done that already. And it's it's only, as I said, it's only two weeks later. There's a lot of football still to be played this season, but whether Varane is available or not for the FA Cup final, the form Lindelof's in at the moment, it would probably be a travesty if he doesn't start against City. Yeah, certainly he's grabbed his chance with both hands, it's fair to say. And he's done really well in the last <laughs> few games. Focusing on the other end of the pitch, Rich, obviously you spoke earlier on about Luke Shaw obviously adapting to a different sort of role this season, certainly in the last few weeks to becoming a centre-half. Bruno Fernandes obviously has had to adapt between playing as his natural number 10 as a right winger this season on occasions. He started on the right on Sunday and Villa. It's quite an element of surprise, I thought, when the team was announced at two at, at one o'clock an hour before kick-off that, that Fernandes was playing that role and he was on the bench. But as Eric Ten Hag explained, he's got to manage his players and got a trip to Brighton coming up on Thursday night. But Fernandez certainly has given United something different from that role this season. And he got the goal on Sunday from, you know, coming in from that area of the pitch. What what have you made to Fernandez's performances in that role this season? Because when he's been tasked with it, he, he's played quite well. I certainly remember against City in the in the game at Old Trafford in January. He had a really good game that afternoon. Yeah, I think he's I think that is <laughs> A trait of Fernandez that gets overlooked quite a lot is his versatility, really. I mean, he has just displayed it over a range of positions this season. Of course, lots of people would prefer him to be in the attacking midfield role. He's been brilliant when played deeper, and he's been good on the right as well. We've seen him in the left wing as well in, in the past for United. So I think it is huge credit to him, huge credit to his mentality and his commitment to the team as well, that he doesn't you know, kick up a fuss. He doesn't start complaining because he's playing in the wrong position. He complains a lot about a lot of things, everyone knows that, but he doesn't complain about what position he plays in. And I think, you know, it's, it's a huge credit to him. It is what you want from your captain, someone who leads by example and gives you that consistent output, regardless of, of where they're playing on the pitch, really. And yeah, I think he was very good against Villa again at, at the weekend. I thought, uh, as Samuel mentioned in the, in the blog that we did as well, that, you know, he, he got an assist from the right wing earlier in the season in the League Cup against Villa as well. So, Ten Hag said it was it was partly tactical the reason for, for playing him there. You know, it, I, I don't think it was too much of a surprise personally that Anthony Wambasaka were dropped after comments Ten Hag made following Tottenham. He said, you know, some players thought ninety percent was enough. The the manner in which United's right wing was exploited. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that he made wholesale yeah, changes on, on that side of the pitch. And 
you know, it's credit to to the players that, that they didn't miss miss them. You know, you usually say Juan Bissaka and Anthony have been sort of the regulars in their positions. Anthony arguably been sort of player of the last month for United. He's been been pretty good. And I think it was just another endorsement of Fernandez. And you can keep on saying he's an unsung hero, but we've said so often now that, you know, he's he's getting the, the praise he deserves. But he's played in fifty two of possible 55 matches for United this season. No outfield player in Europe played more minutes than Fernandez. From what I've seen online, the only player who's played more minutes than Fernandez this season is, is De Gea. Of course, Fernandez played in the World Cup as well. So in terms of actual individual output, over the last year, you'd probably say Fernandez has played more football than anyone else in the world. And this is at a top level for club and country. So it's remarkable. There's always a worry of burnout. He said after the game as well that you know he's still got a little niggle from the Brighton win. And who obviously came off in extra time before the penalty shootout. And, you know, that is the concern for United is that they've got to manage these players properly because against the welfare of them, Fernandez just needs needs a rest. Hopefully now with Champions League football all but secured, United can be a bit more experimental, give players a bit more of a rest between now and the end of the season. But again, it's credit to Fernandez that he won't want to do that. He will want to play every available second. And yeah, I thought he was I thought he was great again. I think it was just a very professional performance by United because it wasn't pretty, but it didn't have to be. I think they managed it well and they would have been disappointed had they not won. Yeah, definitely. I think the best way to, to look at it is the case that it could be a very vital three points from the end of the season against the Samuel Sella Villa side that have been banging form over the last few months. You know, they, they made very light work of Newcastle long ago and United obviously managed to keep them at bay and get the win. Well, that concludes part one of the Manchester Red is Red podcast. If you want more reaction to yesterday's win over Villa, make sure you head over to our special bonus episode that went live earlier on today, offering you insight from Eric Ten Hag's post-match press conference and what he made to the win. Do rejoin us in part two in a couple of moments' time. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast. Obviously, off the pitch ahead of Sunday's win over Villa, there was a huge protest that took place um, throughout Manchester City Centre on route to Old Trafford ahead of kickoff. The 1958 group organised it and it grew in size. It approached Old Trafford, getting bigger and bigger. There were fans pictured marking down Deansgate with banners, flags, and several messages for the Glazers. And I suppose the biggest question of all, which is the million dollar question. Will it have the desired impact for what the fans are hoping for? Obviously, the takeover situation is still ongoing. There's still a lot of uncertainty around it. Samuel, it's probably a very difficult question to answer. As I've just said, it's the million-dollar question. Do you think these protests eventually will will have the desired effect? 
if if they if the United fans get what they want, uh, which would be a full sale, it won't be because of the protests because the the Glazer family are just utterly undeterred by the protests, the virulence, uh, whatever gets chanted inside the ground. Avram Glazer was at the League Cup final in February. Uh, I think Avram Glazer and Edward Glazer were at the first home game of the season. Joel Glazer hasn't been to a United game in four years and his his name continues to be in the programme as, as co-chairman. The, the only thing that will dictate what the Glazers do is 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 what they see in front of them from uh, from Ineos, from Sheikh Hassim, from wh- whatever other investors are are interested in uh, getting involved with with Manchester United. And that that's not to say that what the, the United supporters, those protesters are doing, is is a waste of time. I don't think it is. I think it's very laudable, and particularly when United have become. Um, successful this season they've they've won a trophy but these protests have continued it's it's a lot easier to protest when things are going all right and last season was was an absolute it was a disaster it was it was apocalyptic but you go back to the green and gold campaign that that started when united were, were, were the champions of england when they were playing in the champions league they had the world club cup uh, winners on, on their on, on their kit at the start of that season they won the league cup that season and I think they only lost the Premier League on, but but by a point as well, uh, on on the final day to Chelsea. So, uh, United fans have they're they're not. It's it's kind of like a, an opposite of fair weather fans really, or fair weather protesters. They they will protest whether the team are winning, losing, or drawing if they if if they feel as though there's a a perceived injustice there and. Um, you know, I I know a couple who were on Dean's Gate and who were part of the march and. It seemed like there were there were very good numbers there, um, in in terms of the you know boycotts in the first eighteen minutes of the game that wasn't particularly noticeable. Uh, I mean, with the, with United with the demand to to see Manchester United, there's there are always going to be tens of thousands inside Old Trafford, and although if you peered hard enough, you could see the odd uh, MTC in various blocks. It, it wasn't com- particularly noticeable, and, and certainly although the game wasn't on television in the UK with the cameras with the broadcasters there they they weren't really picking up on it after the 18 minute mark they weren't focusing at the on the gangways to see supporters streaming uh, into the stadium which is is what they did last year during the Norwich game I believe I think there was a lot more attention on that game but I suppose that that protest got a lot more uh, got a lot more traction because it was it was the the, the first of its kind, uh, I suppose. I mean, I was I was in the tunnel before kickoff that day. Uh, I I got to my seat late as well. I think Rich was was well in place for for kickoff on on a nice sunny day in in April. But my uh, my arrival was was slightly delayed because the shutters uh, came down the entrances in the Munich tunnel. So we had to. It was like a rescue from Saigon mission. We had to go around the other side of the stadium to actually be allowed in, which was uh, it's, it's, it's decent book material, I suppose you could say. Um, but but also that day, you, you had United fans chanting for the first time in my life I'd ever heard it. It was, you're not fit to wear the shirt. And then they chanted something un, unrepeatable and, and repeatedly at, at Paul Pogba um, on, his, on his last appearance at Old Trafford. So... Uh, that one was certainly a lot more heated. I, I think looking at some of the images yesterday as well, there, there would have been a lot of ticketless protesters. And again, that's not saying ticketless protesters can't protest. Absolutely not whatsoever. There'll, there'll be 
some of those protesters, they'll be ticketless out of the principle of not wanting to give uh, the Glazer family any any income. But for those who, who do go to the games, who continue to be season ticket holders, who uh, continue to to pay to watch Man United, it's 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 a part of their life. It would be a wrench to give it up, and it's it's a difficult it's a difficult situation to be in. But there's I think the I think one of the positive things about the fan base at the moment is there is a great deal of unity among the um, among the matchgoers, and that there is a a concerted and and common goal that they all share for 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 new ownership. Depending on what uh, transpires there whether it's new owners, whether it's new investors, it'll be interesting to see where they go from there. I think that will be, you know, that, that those, if there is indeed a march following that decision, whenever it may be, I think that will probably get a lot more traction uh, than the protests yesterday. But as I said, there've been so many of these marches. And of course, the, the one prior to the Liverpool game in August, that was, uh, given what had happened against Brentford nine days earlier, th- that got hell of a lot more exposure, and, and rightly so, because United were in an absolute state at that time, and uh, somehow things were getting worse, and or, or it was just an extension of the previous season. And I suppose, fortunately for for the club, Ten Hag has, has finally managed to draw a line under what happened last season, even though there have still been a few disasters along the way. So it's 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 certainly never quiet covering United even on a day when they're not actually on the telly yeah definitely and Rich Samuel mentioned it there about the, the big 1958 protest saw ahead of the Liverpool game back mm. in August and obviously that was the the first on such a scale it was obviously bigger than the one we did see uh, did see on Sunday even though the one on Sunday was what you described as being small but do you think in some sort of way the fact that all these protests have been going off throughout the season obviously against the Glazers do you think Eric Ten Hag and the players deserve a hell of a lot more credit for carrying on the way that they have against the backdrop of this going on with the fans obviously are determined to see the back of the Glazers and in a way he's kind of been just pushed to the side by Eric Ten Hag whenever he's been quizzed on the takeover he's always distanced himself for it. but behind the scenes but you know in the, in the training ground for instance he's going to be well aware of what's going on so do you think Ten Hag against the backdrop of this has done an even better job than what many people give him credit for this season? Yeah, I think it's definitely a, a factor that you've got to consider when evaluating United's success this season. Um, you know, there's there's been a lot he's had to deal with both on and off the pitch in, in terms of a, a wild debut season at the club. There's been so much beyond the football, really, hasn't there, going on. You think of also like the Ronaldo situation as well that he, he had to handle and he's going to have more big decisions to make this summer as well, which will dictate, you know, the very future of Manchester United, but I think it's certainly, you know, unrest and it's it's always difficult as well from his his point of view because, you know, he there's only so much he can do or say. These are his employees at the end of the day, and you know he'll often get questions about the ownership and what he wants for the future of the club, and he has to give these very straight party line answers that you know he just wants the best of Manchester United. He wants to do all he can to to focus on on what's happening on the pitch, really, but. You know, it is the elephant in the room all the time, isn't it? And, you know, I think it is a distraction. I think that regardless of what happens and anyone's personal preference, I think the players and the management manager will be quite happy when it's sort of done and dusted and they can just move on and get on with the job again because obviously as soon as things heat up on the on the takeover again and the preferred bidder is identified and all that jazz and maybe we get closer to an, an official deadline, 
there'll be lots of questions. You can imagine every single mixer and every single press conference will be asked, what do you make of the takeover? What does this mean for United? What does this mean for, for his future at the club? What does it mean for, for the transfer market? There's so many questions that he'll get. And again, he'll probably back them away, straight party liners. But I think it'll just be a welcome relief once it's done. And, and he can focus on the football because, like I said, it, it takes its toll, doesn't it? I mean, even every week on the podcast, we discuss it. and We're discussing it right now. And, you know, it's it's fascinating for United fans because it is such a big decision on what happens to the future of the club. It still polarises supporters as well. And, yeah, I think that Ten Hag does deserve credit for, for just getting on with the job, really, and, and for making a lot of it about the football, really. You know, if things weren't going United's way, he could use it as an excuse. He could say there's distractions, people aren't focused at the club, but he's got everyone just real set on the on the on what's in what's in hand. And I think for these last few games of the season now and for the cup final, United's total focus really will be on the pitch and, and making sure they get another trophy and that they can tr- stop the noisy neighbours from potentially winning a treble. Yeah, definitely that's gonna be the ambition, isn't it, on the third of June. Um, just lastly on the takeover, obviously we know that the final bid went in from Sheikh Jassim and Sir Jim Ratcliffe on Friday night. Um, Samuel, th- this has obviously gone on for quite a while now. Do you have any inside knowledge on if anything could progress in the coming weeks, the coming months to, to get this all wrapped up? I suppose it's a quite a hard thing to put a time frame on really, isn't it? No, it's it's to be honest, I found it all quite tedious really. It's, it's like a transfer story, but on a on a different level i remember when i was away in uh off for a, a week in march and i saw stories that were being written uh that i'd done about six weeks earlier which was just the inevitable that the the two brothers avram and joel are reluctant sellers and obviously it's a second round of bidding a third round of bidding there's a deadline but they've missed the deadline but okay they'll extend the deadline because obviously they want they want the cash um it's, it's been great pr for the glazers and, and for the rain group but uh certainly you know de- dealing with um certain parties it's not been um it's not been a particularly enjoyable experience sometimes it can be like pulling teeth so there's there's nothing really new to add i mean there's a podcast about it called how to buy a football club and in the end united might not get bought so it's you know it's it's, it's getting a lot theoretically of attention, buy a football club. Yeah, yeah indeed yeah they should have done one on wrexham nobody's done a documentary on them it feels like for uh for a few months but uh um yeah, you know, in Venice, I think you look at Wrexham and you've you've got a couple of Americans or one's American, one's Canadian, I should say, um, both engage with the club, both go to games, team who wear red in the northwest, investing in the stadium, um, on on the way up as well. You know, in, in they, United could have done a hell of a lot worse um, than than getting Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, but I'm, I don't think their pockets are are quite deep enough for for Manchester United. No, probably not. But uh, there was once upon a time, wasn't there, where football was just three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. That was as far as it went many many moons ago. But speaking mm. of matters on the pitch, we will look ahead to Thursday's trip to Brighton and Albion in the next part of the Manchester's Red podcast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to part three of this Manchester's Red podcast and the Manchester Evening News. As I said a few moments ago, Manchester United taking the trip down to Brighton on uh, Thursday evening. It's another long away trip for Eric Ten Hag's side after a trip down to the capital to face Spurs last Thursday evening. Um, Samuel, obviously, it's a meeting between two clubs so soon after their last one at Wembley last weekend. Obviously, United prevailed on penalties uh, a week last Sunday to get the FA Cup final. I suppose at this point, we're kind of hoping that this will be a little bit more of an entertaining game. It's a bit of a slow burner at Wembley, even though United got the job done in the end. Yeah, I, I think Brighton are just such a, a good team. You you don't want to underestimate them. You don't want to push your luck against them, frankly. And United have done a couple of times in, in recent years and they've 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 been been pummeled by them um the the, the four nil last i think it's almost a year to the day in fact since that that game you couldn't you didn't think it could get any worse really and and then it did uh, a few months later at brentford but going to brighton again talking about the connection that that wrexham's owners have with with their sports when you go to brighton's ground the, the train station is right outside the stadium the stadium for a relatively new stadium generates pretty good atmosphere the supporters have a connection with the club. Uh, that that it's it's probably the best run club in Britain. They buy well, they sell well, they play brilliant football. Um, they they tick every box apart from trophies. But this is Brighton we're talking about. Nobody's expecting them to to win a trophy every season. Yet they've just got to the FA Cup semi final and uh, and and only lost that on a on a penalty shootout. So um, the result against Wolves at the weekend was. I mean, it's particularly noticeable. I'm sorry, I've got a cough suite in, so in case anyone can hear any rattling going on, that's that's what it is. It's not um, it's not a rattlesnake in the background trying about to get me. But uh, the, going back to the the Wolves win, it, I think Deserby dropped or, or rested at least. Uh, Caicedo, uh, I think McAllister didn't start. I don't think Matoma, Matoma started. Yeah, either. And his his handling of the goalkeeping situation there seems. Certainly, to the outside, quite bizarre because Robert Sanchez has been blocked for sorry, not blocked, dropped for Jason Steele. Who, when I think of Jason Steele, I just think of the first series of Sunderland until I die and him not being a particularly good goalkeeper. But Deserby sees him as well for the time being. Anyway, he sees him as as more suitable than Robert Sanchez, who's in the Spain squad, probably number two for Spain at the moment. And uh, in fairness to him, still got uh, he he got an assist the other week in in one of the games. I think it was against Brentford, and he did actually save a penalty uh, against against Nottingham Forest, which is something that does seem to be beyond Sanchez in shootouts. So Deserby's gone in there. He's made them better when Potter did did a brilliant brilliant job. Uh, he's not afraid afraid to ruffle some feathers. He's he's changed the playing style um, in. in in probably a bigger way than people think. I think Potter was always, it was always synonymous with uh, having a back three, and that's obviously the way he tried to operate with Chelsea. Brighton now seems to play with with a back four, 
but just you look at their squad. I mean, Estupinian is is always a pretty fascinating example, and that he's gone in there. He's probably been at least on a par with how Mark Cucurella did uh, for Brighton, and they sold Cucurella for sixty million pounds to Chelsea. And Estupinian, who's come from Villarreal, I'm not too sure of how much, but quite for quite frugal fee, and he's he's just as good as him. Their their succession plan across across the board, whether it's manager goalkeeper defender midfielder is is exceptional and they've got Evan Ferguson on a new contract as well which is very sensible because already you could argue that he's he's a 50 million pound player Caicedo is probably an 80 million pound player same for McAllister their, their squad is probably worth upwards of of half a million pounds when you factor in the real the real gems uh, in there so there, there is so much to admire about them, and I, just from a personal experience, I really enjoy going to Brighton. It's, um, as I said, it's it's a really good stadium. They've they've got a good link up with the university there nearby, uh, whereby these students who are switched on students as well. We've all encountered students who are um, a little bit a, a bit oblivious, to put it mildly, but they go to the mix zone. They ask questions. They're you know, they're, they're given remarkably great access and it, it must be a manner of heaven if you want to get into the industry so just pottering about the the stadium it you you can't help but be impressed i mean i don't think rich has has been to the amex yet but he'll realize how unique it is the mix zone area the dressing room area i mean we got a piece out of just Ronaldo's antics in the mix zone last year without any of the United players talking to us. But the colour you can glean from from there is fascinating, which is is maybe by by accident rather than by design. But from from a journalistic perspective, it certainly does uh, uh, it, it does um, enhance the charm of Brighton. But on a footballing on the footballing side of things, I think it's possibly the biggest compliment you can pay for that pay to them is that United are going there on Thursday. And I don't think many United fans are expecting them to win, partly because of their dreadful away record against the the top teams, but also because Brighton are just such an excellent footballing team. Definitely, and you've teed me up there, Samuel, really nicely for the next segment of this, looking at that torrid away record that United have got against top half teams this season. I've lost track of how many times that I've looked at this day to this season. (laughs) Obviously... They they faltered again at Spurs on Thursday night against another top half team. And United now they've only beaten one of the top ten away from home this season. That was Fulham back in November. So just to go a little bit higher, like they've not beaten anybody in the top eight as it stands. Rich, this is their last chance this season to sort of bury this demon at Brighton on Thursday night with their remaining away games against the likes of West Ham and Bournemouth, who are certainly bottom half of the table, bottom end. But it's, as Samuel said, it's going to be a really, really tough challenge. And we've all got memories of what happened the last time United went to the Amex, even though things have improved since then dramatically. But away from home this season, there have been too many incidents where United have grumbled. Yeah, uh, I mean, what is it? United have taken one point from their away matches against the top nine this season, have they? Something like that, that yeah. They drew at Spurs. Um, not Tottenham. Yeah. That's Tottenham. It's Tottenham, yeah. yeah. We used to include Chelsea in yeah. that, but they've you know they're on the same points as Bournemouth now. They're twelfth. So. Yeah. You forget yeah. about them. But that's it, one point one point from the away is against the top nine. So it says it all Horrid. about how United have have dropped. Um, is the I mean, Fulham will have, would have been in it as well earlier in the season when they were they doing really well. That would have given United, you know, another four points on on that tally. But just the way that the Premier League has has sort of moved and, and manipulated in, in the last few weeks, it's it's not a flattering record whatsoever. And 
I know you can twist it and say United are brilliant at home and that is their bread and butter. And if you win your home games, then you're going to have a good season and then whatever you get away from home is a bit of a bonus. But it's clearly a huge issue and it's so peculiar. You know, we saw Sevilla as well. United absolutely crumbled away from home. We saw the, the Betis game. United could have been 2 or 3 nil down pretty early on. There have been some moments where they've looked better away from home, but it has been a bit of a running trend. I mean, you even look at that Fulham win. United were very lucky to get anything from that game because they were dreadful in the second half and they finally get the winner. We say how good the character is, but there have been warning signs throughout the season about United just away from home from that very first away day. And you do wonder what can be done next to actually solve that because there's clearly huge underlying issues and it's... It's just really peculiar. I, I can't quite put my finger on it, how a team could be so drastically worse away from home. Like I said, it's, it's always going to be tough to, to compare them against that home record because it's so good. But the away record is the complete polar opposite. It's not as if there's a slight drop-off and we're getting pedantic. They are dreadful away from home in the Premier League against those top sides. So I, I just don't know what they can do to, to sort of solve it, really. I'm not sure if it is down to mentality, if they need to adapt their approach in these matches, really kind of embrace a bit more of an underdog status, which I know sounds ridiculous for Man United, but when they're getting turned over so regularly away from home, then maybe they need to be a bit more defensive-minded and then use their use their own threat on the break. But I think what is interesting will be how that defence that we praised so early on in this podcast get on uh, away from home because Sancho, like we said, sorry, uh, Shaw and Lindelof have been brilliant in the last few weeks and putting them at the Amex shouldn't, mean that that partnership just suddenly becomes bad. So I think it's just going to be a real test for United to prove that they are, again, still on the rise. And hopefully now they can start building with one eye on next season because it has been always the focus on getting top four football. That is basically you know secured now. So I think this will just be a real fascinating encounter for United to prove that they can do it in a big game because that is what Brighton away is now these days. And I think it will be as impressive a result as any, really, if they can get something on Thursday night. Yeah, certainly. They've not been unlucky in any of these games either, have they? If you look at no. the, the, these away matches that they've lost or, or drawn, it's, I mean, City, they were 6-1 down at one point. The Arsenal result... Well, the, the only game they were, they were lucky in really was City because they should have been... They should have yeah, lost they, they, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. I think, to be honest with you, even yeah. though obviously everybody will look at the Brentford, Liverpool, Man City defeats as being the worst, I still think the Newcastle one was up there because of how flat and inspiring they were. Oh, it was dreadful. It was really yeah. bad. Well, yeah, yeah. they were, they were think, never going to get anything from it. Yeah. I think it's one of those that... I mean, Ten Hag in, in Seville, he, he categorised the, the severe away game with... Uh, Brentford, Liverpool, City, and that was unprompted. I think maybe he didn't mention Newcastle because it was a relatively modest scoreline. But in terms of the the actual performance that day, it's certainly up there or, or more more like down there with with those other ones. Yeah, definitely. And I think when you look at United's last six games now, and you would never would have dreamt of saying this considering they've still got Chelsea to come. Brighton away on Thursday night is probably their last big, big test that they've got to face between now and the end of the of the Premier League season. Anyway, obviously they've still got to go to West Ham, and Bournemouth. Well, Bournemouth probably not really now got much to fight for. They've probably got the job done. West Ham maybe just one more win will do yeah. it for themselves. Um, but just lastly on on the trip to Brighton, Samuel. Obviously we've discussed the changes Eric Ten Hag made on Sunday. What do you think he could possibly look at on, on Thursday night? Do you think Anthony could come back into the team for his effectiveness on the counter-attack away from home? 
I think that's certainly something to to, to consider for it in that he, he will want freshness and they have got two games this week. It's another Thursday, Sunday schedule, which was, was not a request by United. I, I thought given the, the, the Chelsea game in hand as well, which is in the final week of the season. And I, I presume that would be on a Wednesday. That's on a Thursday as well. I, I wondered whether United had just got into the rhythm of playing Thursday, Sunday, and they they made these requests to the Premier League. It's not the case whatsoever. In fact, they find it quite quite frustrating that they keep on keep being put on on Thursday night games by by the Premier League as well. So hopefully that will be a thing of the past next season. But bearing in mind that that West Ham are certainly a more they're a much more testing side to face away from home. And I think the atmosphere could be uh, quite quite intense for that game as well, given that it's a, is it seven pm kickoff on Sunday, yeah. which is really really helpful for everyone having to go to that one. Um, so he he is going to have to think a little bit ahead this week, and he has done that already at times this season. The the attacking performance against Villa certainly beyond half time it was not particularly impressive, and I think those two games last week against Spurs and Villa we we knew it already, but they were more. It was it was more evidence as to why they they do need a new number nine because although Rashford can do that job against Villa, where United were playing so many long balls over the top because Villa although they were positionally disciplined where they were playing such a high line it was easy to get behind them and Rashford wasn't always great at holding the ball up if you if you pinging those passes to Kane they would have stuck or Victor Osman or take another eminent striker of your choice. So I can see there being a change there. I mean, as, as well as Fernandes did against Villa, uh, it's it's always a means to an end. You always want to put him back in his um, in in the position where he's at his most optimum, and that's in the centre, whether it's in a deeper role or advanced. I mean, I thought he played very well against Spurs last week, despite that that chance he had at two one when he smacked it against the crossbar. So Anthony would be. The, the logical one to come in but as far as the back four goes I mean it completely I, I didn't realize it or f- sorry I've, I'd forgotten it when I was um, writing up my la- my Malassia quotes but Malassia did actually start against City in in January when United won you, you think Tyrone Malassia and you just think his nightmare 45 minutes that the Ed had when Phil Foden had him on toast but given that he's got experience of starting in a United win against City there has to be you know, a, a sequence of games where Ten Hag looks to build a defence that is going to be starting in the cup final rather than changing it as often as he has done in recent weeks. And some of that has been forced upon him. But I go back to the Tottenham game and I, I didn't think it was the right thing to do to be, you know, chain, altering the defence um, as as much as he did. I mean, the, his, his way of countering the onslaught was to put Malassia on. That didn't work. But if he wants a balanced two left-footers, two right-footers, he's got to be pretty dif- decisive about that. If if Varane isn't going to be available for the cup final, and the cup final is, what, just over four weeks away. So if you can build a bit of momentum and, and some rhythm with a, a, a new constant back four, I think that's probably in United's interest because, let's face it, they're not going to face a, a, a tougher attack all season than the City side that they come up against at Wembley. Yeah, definitely. And, and lastly, on the on the changes, looking ahead to Brighton, Rich, we, we saw at Wembley a week last Sunday how well Aaron Wan-Bissaka dealt with the threat of Karu Matoma. Obviously, Matoma didn't start. Brighton's win over Wolves on Saturday, which suggests he'll be you know reinstated the starting lineup on Thursday night. Wan-Bissaka dealt with him impeccably at Wembley. 
So is that another alteration Eric Ten Hag might have to consider what Samuel said? Tyrell Molassia will probably be the obvious one to drop out of that and with Dallow going back to left back. So there's quite a bit of juggling and management that needs to be done with this one, isn't it? Yeah, and again, there's so many cogs that play out there because like you said, if you move one player, then you've got to compensate for it elsewhere. And another factor is maybe how Ten Hag views the wingers with his right backs as well. Because I think Anthony and Wan-Bissaka complement each other really well. So I'd almost say that if you're playing one, you've got to play both of them. And then like you said, then the Dallow is going at left back. So I, I do think there's just so many, so many cogs to all this, really. It's it's a really tricky one to, to solve. And, and maybe this is a plug for, for our piece on Thursday morning where you can see the team that we would select. But I think that there is definitely an argument to to put Wan-Bissaka in there. See if, you know, I mean, like I said, I, maybe you can't read too much into it, but I did personally think that Anthony and Wan-Bissaka being dropped at the weekend was punishment for, for the Tottenham debacle and the way that United lost a grip on that game and were, were so gettable down the right flank. So have they learnt their lesson, maybe? If they've missed out on the Villa game, perhaps you would put them back in. But I think that the real test for me is still going to be the centre-halves to see how they deal with it together because we've given them so much credit now. They have to carry on back and get up and prove that they are the ones who are who deserve to be starting every week because, you know, Harry Maguire, there, there is on your bingo cards. He's still there lurking on the bench. He still feels he should be playing every single game. He will tell you about his phenomenal record when starting for United, even though that's taken a bit of a dent in recent weeks. But, you know, they've got to actually go out there and do it now. And United can't start getting complacent because it does feel that every time we say United have boxed off the top four, they find a way to invite others back into the race as well. So, I think that in terms of selection, it, it will be a couple of changes, but you wouldn't be surprised either if, if Ten Hag decided to reward those who, who were good against Villa because that arguably was the toughest game United had left this season, Villa at home, as tough as Brighton away, given how good they've been over the last 20 games. So it's just a, another big week and perhaps after Thursday night, we'll finally know for certain, really, if United are in the top four and then going forward, there might be more room for experimenting with the lineup, but I think it'll be a very strong side again on, on Thursday with, with very few changes. Yeah, definitely. I think, obviously, once we've got West Ham out of the way on Sunday, United have actually got a clean free midweek next week for the first time in a very long time, so that might come into thinking as well. But it's uh, going to be an interesting one on Thursday night, and obviously, Rich and Samuel, you'll both be heading down to the Amex for that one. So I think that's where we call time on today's episode of the Manchester Red Podcast. A big thank you as ever to both Samuel and Rich for joining me this afternoon. It goes without saying that if you enjoyed this podcast and would prefer to watch it as well as listening, we are now available on YouTube as well. Just search Manchester is Red and you subscribe to the channel there. We'll be back later in the week to reflect on the trip to Brighton and look ahead to Sunday's trip to West Ham United as well. So make sure you do join us probably on Friday. Take care and we'll see you again very, very soon.